Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How does that macchiato in there stand up to scrutiny? Coffee brewing, making various different uh, kinds of coffee is elevated in, in Italy, just on a kind of milk to coffee ratio, temperature ratio, just like sort of things like that. What's your ideal parameters for those things you've listed there, though? I don't know. I just know that it, it tends to taste better made by an Italian. It's like a podcast. Anyone can make a podcast. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> there are ways to make it better. So I was interested to see Jim Ratcliffe's uh, takeover of um, of Nice was ratif- Ratcliffified. Ratified. <laughs> um, and of Ooh. course, they, they played last night and lost to Marseille, which has put the stoppers on their good start, really. But... Yeah, back-to-back wins. What, 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 season. Yeah, they, exactly. What, what do you make of... That game, but also before that, what do you make of how Ratcliffe and his money and and his strategic decision, as he said in his in his press release, to 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 take over Nice means for Ligue 1 in general? Well, as for the game itself, um, the off pitch stuff was probably a bit more interesting than the on pitch stuff. We'll we'll come to that in a minute. Yeah, but um, less palatable. Yeah, ex- exactly. But I think. Um, you know, talking of it, putting the brakes on Nice's fast start. Well, it was always going to be tough because they're struggling with a bad pitch at the Alliance Riviera at the moment. Um, they've had an outbreak of fungus on the pitch, which is something that's quite it's fairly common, right? It's, it's been common in France over the last couple of summers. Um, they've had difficulties controlling it, and the fact that the French national rugby team have played there relatively recently as well. The pitch looked really worn and it did and, and, and patchy. Um, but also, I think when we look at Nice and when we look at Patrick Vieira, we have to say what an incredible job he's he's done because he's been through last season. Of course, one of the first things he had to do was deal with Balotelli, who left halfway through last season, obviously after producing very little in the first half of last season when he was still trying to get that move to, to Marseille, which eventually happened in winter. Um, and he never got a replacement. Like they, they really struggled for goals last season. Since then, Alain Saint-Maximin has gone. Um, the transfer market for them has kind of been blocked while they've been waiting for the, 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 the takeover to happen. So the side which he's been going into games with, um, the surprise is not that they lost to Marseille last night. The surprise is that they won the first two games with what Vieira's had to work with. Right. I mean, he has had to coach his ass off so far. I think the biggest thing you can say about Vieira, he's not rested on his his name or his reputation or or anything like that. He's just asked to be judged on what he's done. Now, Nice do have good facilities. They have a beautiful new training ground. And now they're going to have some some more money going forward. But what he's done so far to bring them to the point he has is absolutely fantastic. I mean, they could barely buy a goal through most of last season because what they had up front was, was powder puff. Nothing's changed yet. Um, they've got, a couple of signings ready that they're going to push over the line now that Ineos 
um, takeover is complete. So last night in the stands, uh, you had Casper um, Dolberg of Ajax and uh, Alexis Claude Maurice. Uh, the attacking midfielder from Lorient, who scored a lot of goals in, in, in Ligue 2 last season, and who Arsenal were interested in and looks pretty fantastic. They're going to sign, well, they probably will have signed by the time you l- listen to this. Um, so that'll add a little something. They'll need a little bit more, but you know they're not going to be able to do a massive splurge before the end of this transfer window. Of course, it shuts on, on, on Monday. But that's a little start. So losing to Marseille is like a setback, but just a minor setback because what Vieira's done so far is fantastic and to see what he's able to do with slightly bigger resources will be interesting. Well and on that point about Vieira whenever a club is undergoing a takeover things like transfer window your plans in that transfer window get put back mm. um, because you know the buyer is doing his due diligence and essentially freezes the the actions of the club and so in terms of getting new recruits in, or certainly some of the players that they plan to get in, that all has to wait for the takeover to be concluded. So French League starts earlier than any of the other top five leagues. Vieira's had to work with the team more or less without new recruits. And now we're seeing this kind of acceleration. Um, and, you know, they are putting some big money down, really. I mean, I was quite surprised not on the back of the season that he's just had, because I think he is a talent, but they're prepared to pay Napoli 25 million euro for Adam Unas, who's a very good wide player. Um, yeah, that's big money for a club like uh, Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also curious to get Andy's opinion on, on Kasper Dolberg, because Dolberg is almost like one of those football manager players, yeah. YouTube, Twitter hyped players. And I'd say that since coming on the scene a couple of years ago and people getting excited about him. I remember there was talk of Monaco uh, looking to invest in him when Monaco was seen as the premier recruiters of the next big thing. It just hasn't really happened or taken off for him. And I would say this feels to me almost like a, not a sideways step, but a step down for for a player who is regarded as as a very good talent. It's been at Ajax for, what, three years and 21 In now. the first team for that long. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean... He needs the move. There's no doubt mm. about it. He was surprisingly peripheral to um, Ajax's uh, brilliant season last year. And I think the notable thing about him going, and this has been on the cards for like a, a few weeks now that this was going to get completed with Nice, they're delighted to get as much money as they are getting for him. And they're getting a touch over a 20 million. And there might be a few little add-ons to go on to that. Um, but yeah, he really does need to re-kickstart his career. And there will be pressure on him straight away because he's coming with a name. And I've, I think you're right, James. Like People don't pay particular attention to the struggles he's had in the last year, year and a half. And people will be hoping for him to, to hit hard from early on. And, you know, the French League is a lot more physical than the Dutch League. Funnily enough, I think that's part of the game that he'll be able to stand up to. I, I think he'll be, be fine with that. Um, but I, I think... Talking about Claude Maurice arriving as as well is important because a lot of Dolberg's job won't just be to score the goals. It will be to occupy the centre-backs so Claude Maurice can make those late runs into the penalty box, <coughs> as he did, excuse me, at Lorient. So that could work quite well together. But because they've got so little strength in depth up front, 
uh, at Nice. Like they signed uh, Mazian Molida from from uh, Lyon last year, and that's not really worked out so far. Even though he does have talent, so there's not an enormous amount of forward depth, and Dolberg is going to be expected to produce, produce quickly, and produce well every week, really, because. They've not got a huge lot of other options. He had, he had a um, kind of situation where I think people, a few, a few, you know, people in the know, or whatever they want to call themselves, ahead of the World Cup last summer, were kind of saying, "Look, keep an eye on Casper Dolberg. He's a good, interesting young player. Plays for Ajax. Might get a few goals." Of course, Denmark made it through to the knockout stage, where they were knocked out by Croatia. But he didn't score a single goal. He didn't really sort of do anything. No. And, and these days, even in 2018, as it mm. was then, the World Cup is still quite impactful in terms of burnishing a young player's reputation, isn't it? So it feels to me a bit like he disappeared off. How how, how important was he for, in your guys' opinion, for Ajax's uh, Champions League well, last season? let's not forget that ultimately mm. Dusan Tadic played as a false nine yeah. and if he wasn't playing in that position they had the old Klasjan Huntela who would, who would come in and do that. that the Hunter. The Hunter. And what, what a contribution from the Hunter this week. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the, the, the second goal that Ajax scored against Apoel to mm-hmm. finally seal getting through to the Champions League group yeah. stage and we'll talk about know, that after the draw so we'll talk about that next week in, de- in detail yeah but yeah. Th- well, what we have to say now is Dusan Tadic did it for them all over again after seeing them through I mean people talk about what he did in in the group stage and in the knockout stages last season he was responsible for them actually getting to the group stage in the first bit which is easy to forget about when you've got all the way to the yeah. to the semi-finals it was a brilliant goal the second goal against Apoel and they were stuck on one side of the pitch Ajax and they played their way out of it in a very Ajax way and then Huntelaar who remember they used to make adverts about how he couldn't do anything outside the penalty box him and R- Ricky Van Volswinkel yeah. he looks up he sees this really difficult part he sweeps this brilliant pass all the way across to the other side of the pitch in a way that habitually people have felt now Huntelaar can't do that kind of thing Tadic brings it down smashes it in the corner 2-0 and that seals everything and to Tadic and Van Volswinkel of course two English Football Hall of Famers and no, and no mistake yes. without doubt I'm actually pleased that due to some weird sliding doors moment I'm not going to have to see Dusan Tadic play for, against Portsmouth at Fratton Park in the League Cup this season <laughs> <laughs> um, rolling back down to, um, to, to Nice though I mean you, you, you touched on it the game was stopped for a period of time. This home game they lost against Marseille due to uh, unsavoury homophobic chanting. Um, and banners. And banners as well. Um, this is becoming a kind of flashpoint in, in French football. And I think I want to say Italian and Spanish football as well in principle around how ultras kind of react to the authorities or how they perceive the authorities are telling them what they can and can't do in stadiums. Do you want to just expand on that a little bit? As I alluded to earlier, um, the bigger issue wasn't really what happened on the pitch, but what was happening off it, because there was this 10-minute delay in the first half um, under these new powers that uh, match officials have to stop a game if there are uh, homophobic chants or banners. And there were both uh, coming from the Populaire Sud and uh, uh, the Alliance Riviera from um, some Nice supporters. And a couple of the players talked about it afterwards and um, saying that it was you know, something that they don't want to see. And of course, it's something that uh, none of us want to see. But this has become like a recurrent theme in the opening weeks 
um, of of the French season and not just in the top flight because referees have these new powers to stop games if there are homophobic chants or, or, or banners or expressions of uh, homophobic feeling or use of homophobic language. Um, you had a game between uh, Nancy and Le Mans in Ligue 2 uh, stopped because of that and the crowd given a warning. Likewise in the top flight uh, last weekend at Brest and uh, um, Monaco versus Nîmes, not from the Monaco supporters because Obviously, there's very little singing there, but the the Neem supporters, which just down the road, there were um, quite a, a large number. Some of the Neem players um, approached the away fans and asked them to to, to knock it on the head, and um, it's it's something that's that's a, a real concern. But I think it's it's really highlighted an issue that's that's already there. I think of largely casual homophobia. But these incidents are, are happening more and more because um, a portion of ultras from these various clubs where the games have been stopped have taken issue. And I'm not sure if it's necessarily with the idea of cracking down on homophobia, but on their right to say exactly what they want. Mm. Now, this is something we've seen in a lot of different countries, we've seen it with Spurs fans, haven't we? And their what they see as their right to use the Y word, mm-hmm. for a, a, example. Um, but the way that ultras have reacted to to this, have, have reacted quite pugnaciously, as if they're they're saying, "Well, you know what? If you're telling us how to behave, we're going to react by ramping it up." So, whereas you know, it's it's something that had to be done. And I think most players are on board with it. Patrick Vieira and Andre Villas-Boas, the, the the two coaches, were saying, you know, it's it's disruptive to the game, of course, but it's something that that has to be done and something that we're we're fully behind and and, and supportive of. Um, but in the short term, obviously, it's leading to an upswing in use of this language and in in, in use of these kind of in also, I mean, in terms of these kind of events. I think it's really interesting that, you know, in 2019, football is still not seen as an environment in which uh, gay players feel comfortable coming out. Mm. And Albin Ekdal, the Sweden international um, Sampdoria midfielder, um, released a a video highlighting this issue um, only a few weeks ago, saying that, you know, in all other walks of life, this is normal. Um, and yet, for for some reason, in football, this environment still doesn't exist. And you look at the 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 atmosphere at these at these games, and you can kind of completely understand, mm. you know, why why players would have second thoughts about coming out. Mm. Um, it's yeah, it's just do, in, do from you, that sense, I think it's are either of you convinced by the argument that says. You know, the rise of populism in 2019 around not just the US and the UK, but in Europe as well, and that football stadiums are a reflection of society. So if it becomes more, in quotes, acceptable for people to, to be able to articulate these kind of old-fashioned, unacceptable opinions, then it stands to reason it's going to be reflected in stadiums because they're a cross-section of those type of people as well. Possibly, but I, I feel... Do people feel emboldened by absolutely. that society? Yeah, they, they, they do, absolutely. But I feel quite confident that um, that will change in the future because um, when I speak to younger people, I'm talking about 
children and my children's friends and my children's mm. older friends who are interested in football. When you talk to subjects, uh, to them about subjects like this, they're all very nonplussed by it. They're like, well, why, yeah. would, why would someone be criticised for, mm. for being gay? So mm. uh, that makes me feel quite optimistic about, about the future. But in the, in the short term, if this means that ultra, ultra culture has to change, then fine. I mean, we've we've been here before. I think um, because, like, in the last couple of years in in Spain, there's been an anti-discriminatory and violence task force that has looked to crack down on um, not just regional stereotypes in, in in football chants, but what they feel is, you know, abuse, debasing other people's culture. Yeah, um, and sometimes I, I think from outside Spain, it's been difficult for people to understand how important that is. And when we see Spain and the Spanish authorities not being sufficiently hard on racism, it's difficult for us to understand in terms of what we would see as a, as a, as a right ordering well, of, of priorities. Well, but actually, it does fall into the same category doesn't it of of, of of hate speech i think what we have is a situation where football has always had sort of well i don't know if priding itself is the right word but it always seems to have subscribed to its own hype when it comes to football industry exceptionalism now we talked about it last season james when there were certain ultras at a club in italy forgive me i forget which club it was that weren't happy that women were allowed to stand in a certain part ah, of that the, was lazio yeah of the, of the curva or whatever yeah yeah <clears throat> This is if you if you if you take that instant there instance there another instance about homophobic chanting and banners another thing about racism all these different sort of pocket issues which are of course are related and transpose them onto any other area of society I mean it'd be absolutely unacceptable heads mm. would roll yeah. heads would absolutely roll in any kind of other organisation I don't mean about obviously we've seen problems this season already with racism on Twitter for example which is it kind of attracts the worst part of our society and gives them a platform but in other otherwise fully rounded, um, accepted, regulated institutions outside of football, this kind of behaviour would be absolutely ridiculous. Yet there seems to be a exceptionalism in football that pervades and, and, and sort of rages against the dying of a light because they see it as the last bastion of white working class men's territory, mm. which it doesn't need to be. Well, and they see Stadia as a zona franca, you know, yeah. where they can pretty much say and do whatever they like, whatever they please. Mm. Um, as though it's it's outside of that society that you're talking about, yeah. all other walks of life. Yeah. Um, and and that. So it's interesting how we. But how how is that combated? Do you think? Well, by imposing measures like these and and getting tough and actually enacting them, um, because I do think a, a, an element of this is territorial. Like this yeah. is totally our patch. This totally. is where we are all powerful. Don't step on it. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, while challenging it in the in the manner that Andy has has described, um, is ultimately kind of self defeating in that it ends up with that territory being closed and mm. and you not having access to it. Mm. Um, it's you know it's it's a bizarre culture that these these individuals want to defend. You know, yeah, I, and I thought, want to be yeah. associated. With. I find it fascinating in a way, in, in a more broad sense. I mean, I find a lot of the stuff that's been talked about absolutely horrific, of course, as any right-minded person would. But I find it interesting of this this idea of exceptionalism because we also have a, 
as an industry, whether it's FIFA traditionally or perhaps the English Football League, as we've seen with Berry and, and Bolton, and now this kind of thing, where they, it feels to me as a football fan or a broadcaster in football that these these authorities and associations, they're not really beholden to anyone. I mean, the only reason that FIFA had a, a kind of, I suppose, surface level ostensible changes at the top was because the FBI got involved because they were dealing in dollars and, mm. and the FBI felt that was under their purview so they got involved and there was a change at the top but most people are cynical about whether anything's actually changed. You know, it's very, very difficult. If, 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 if homophobia in stadiums, racism all throughout football fans on Twitter and in stadiums as well, if corruption at the top of the game and all the rest of it carries on in an industry that is so now, now so large... It's hard to see a decent argument against some kind of independent regulator across different associations to get it sorted because ultimately it's 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 completely unacceptable. It's a complete time warp and, and, and everything is so old-fashioned. I understand there are cultural sensitivities around different nations and different ways people handle things. I mean, James, you've spoken eloquently in the past about the divide between the north and the south of Italy, for example, that may seem odd to the rest of us, but within Italy it's a huge issue, right? Yeah. So there are cultural sensitivities involved. But ultimately there needs to be some leadership at the top of the game to make this almost a culture change. It's a becoming unacceptable. That is true. But if we're taking it back to the start and... The, the way that the LFP is trying to deal with this in France, I think it's it's really short-term pain for long-term gain. Yeah. Because I think what's the most notable aspect about this, yeah, there are some unreasonable people taking it as a challenge. But the fact is, what we have seen is, even though it's very disruptive the, in the short term, with games being stopped, the coaches are behind it, high-profile players are behind it, and to have the the industry behind it is is a huge start. Yeah, true. Henry para Messi. Messi el pase para Henry es buenísimo. Henry, 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 Henry. Gol, 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 gol. Titi, 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 gol. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If I had an extra hour in the day, I might catch up on the latest football news, take a lovely walk with my dog Sammy, or maybe interview someone using an orange peel and a broken iPhone. You know, normal journalism stuff. But it's not always easy to prioritise our time, and that's where therapy can be an extra helping hand. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Untangle any unneeded worries and start to value your time for you. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Ramble. 
We got an email from Kieran Laverick who spoke to us uh, about Monchi and Sevilla. Now, I know, James, you've got some, I should say, by the way, email at otc at footballroundwithdaily.com. James, you have got some very fiercely held opinions about Monchi who came over to the capital of Rome, your, uh, the capital of Italy, your Just beloved Rome. Don't give him any more coffee <laughs> for the and, moment. And, <laughs> and you, you presumably never want to see him again. But Sevilla, well, no, that's not fair. Sevilla have started well, which we'll come on to. Um, but Monchi's now obviously back there where he was before. He's gone, gone to Rome and come back again. I believe there's a piece in the offing that's going to be published soon about your opinion of Monchi's time at Rome. Well, it's a, it's a not, Rome Derby kind of preview, right, really. Okay. But I we're not using the word touch. character assassination because <laughs> that would be unfair. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, look, I think um, you know Monchi's reputation is intact. You know, I mean, he's gone back to Sevilla. It's like the two years at Rome never happened. You know, he's still this. Is that just the way he likes it? The, the, the guy who knows how to to run the transfer market better than anybody else. But I think if you were to talk to to Roma fans or just Italian football fans in general, you would say that his time um, at Roma um, was not a success. Even though in the first year, you know, the team reached the Champions League semi final. Um, yeah, there was mm. a lot of expectation. Uh, around the team and around him, of course, because of uh, the reputation that he's built for himself. Um, but, you know, after him resigning, shortly after Eusebio Di Francesco got the sack... Why did he resign? Because he tied his future to that of the manager, Eusebio Di Francesco. Which is strange for a sporting director because he must understand that management is, is transient in football and that he's got to have something more long-term. Exactly. And this was a, a major bone of contention um, with um, the owner, um, James Pallotta, in that uh, I think in December, uh, Ron had lost the game in the Champions League. There was already pressure on Di Francesco, uh, pressure on the club to take action. And uh, Monchi said, protecting the manager, that he doesn't have a plan B, or plan C, a plan D. And that is exactly what a sporting director should have at all times. Right. You must have contingency plans in your drawer for a rainy day when everything turns bad. And he didn't. Um, and yeah, that was uh, one of the things um, that I would say um, has, has been levelled at him as criticism. The other is if you look at the, some of the signings that, that he made, um, they have really set Roma back. Um, yeah, because when you decide to spend uh, or commit 42 million euro um, to uh, Sampdoria for Patrick Schick, who was seen as one of the brightest talents in Italy and one of the brightest talents on the continent in general when, when they signed him, but had gone to Juventus and Juventus then decided actually we're going to pull out of this transfer. Um, they signed him when they didn't need him. It was an opportunity signing in that, yeah, this is an opportunity too good to miss. And Monchi, I think in, 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 his, in the past has said, we had the chance to sign Danny Alves. We didn't need a right back at the time, but I thought this guy, Danny Alves, was so good that I couldn't pass up on the chance mm. to sign him. That was the explanation behind Schick. Are but, you sympathetic to that idea though? To an extent, I mean, you, I think unless you play a back three, you're always going to need a fullback. Um, yeah, and I think, also, also, Danny Alves, when he bought him for Sevilla, cost one eighty fourth of of what Patrick Schick cost. Yes, yes. And uh, but yeah, I mean, what he's doing there is he's highlighting an aspect of his job which may not seem automatically clear to the yeah. regular fan, right? He's yeah. like, well, I need to, I need to judge these signings on their merits. Now, I understand sure. strikers are different to fullbacks, I of mean, course. Is, because... Isn't this just sorry, Luke? Isn't this just a case of 
dimension. I mean, Monchi always had this feeling in his head. And part of that, of, of course, was because he was so entrenched in Sevilla, mm. in the culture. He was there for so long. The club was him and he was the club. But you and I have talked about this and you're saying, you know, he always thought he wasn't suited to a really big club. I mean, is this part of the problem that Roma was a bigger club than perhaps he perceived and mistakes are simply more costly? Because there were those mistakes at Sevilla. You know, you look at like when he bought Gansel, like mm. Gansel was an opportunity signing. And, you know, here was someone who was thought of as a as as a wonder kid when when he was in Brazil had some injury problems and he did that thing really that in some cases I would say bad sporting directors think or bad coaches think where they think oh well he may have had loads of injuries he may not have taken off in 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 the way that people thought he would I can change this hmm. I can be the one to change him lo and behold they get him he's off out on loan at Amiens before you know it and and then he goes back to Brazil he was yeah. talked about in the same as sentences as Neymar at the time. It was like Gansu yeah. and Neymar were yeah. the ones in Brazil doing all the yeah. stuff. Um, and that happens in football all the time, by the way. Managers or sporting directors think they're the one to, to get a tune out of a player. It happens all the time. I mean, any coach or sporting director is entitled to make a mistake. It happens. I mean, what you're speaking about there is a catalogue of mistakes, but I think a catalogue of mistakes which have been put under the microscope because there was a very big, very bad one early on. Well, look, I think Roma went into both summer transfer windows um, with a very specific brief of what the manager needed. A manager you've tied your future to. So you should be doing everything to ensure that manager is a success. Mm. And instead, I would counter that particularly last summer, he was set up to fail. So with Schick... Roma were looking for a right winger who could cut, cut in on his left. And so they were in talks with Leicester about Riyad Mahrez. Schick is left-footed and can play off the right, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, just as I can. I mean... Well, that, yeah, that's, it's... that's going too far. <laughs> that, that, that. It's not his natural game. Sure. You're asking him to come out of his comfort zone and yeah. do a job that isn't his, okay? They don't sign Mahrez because um, Leicester stood firm on their valuation. And they signed Schick instead. Schick had been playing as a second striker mm. in a 4-3-1-2 under Marco Giampaolo at Sampdoria. Year one doesn't work out with him. Year two, they have the same need. We need a right winger who can cut in on his left. They identify Hakim Ziyech from Ajax. And they could get Hakim Ziyech from Ajax. For a fraction of the price that he would sell for today. And instead, Monchi signs Javier Pastore against, for example... Francesco Totti's um, analysis, his assessment of the situation. And can I interject here, actually, James? But obviously, we talked before on the podcast about Totti leaving Roma mm. and how much that hurt. How much of that do you attribute to Monchi? Not a great deal, to be right. honest. Um, I think there have been a lot of issues when it comes to transparency and who matters when it comes to decision-making at Roma. Um, And, for example, he said we should push for Ziyech. Um, Monchi instead went ahead and signed Pastore, who, to go back, um, is a number 10. Best that it's number 10. There isn't a number 10 
role. He's also right footed. Di Francesco. He's also injured all the time. He's <laughs> yeah. also and, a massive salary because he was at PSG. And that's the thing. It, it's, <laughs> it's not just whether he fits in the system. It's 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 how it goes in terms of your budget and your payroll. Sure. Mm. You pay twenty five million for a player who's twenty nine at the time, injury plagued, and you give him a five year deal, a five year deal, and he's the second highest earner at the club. I mean, again, that has been a disaster. Um, but Totti resigned ultimately because he thought that whatever he said, um, it just didn't matter. It didn't didn't hold any weight whatsoever. That what Monchi Philippe... would go and sign Pastore instead of Ziyech and that ultimately the, the key decisions when it came to, to Roma's transfers and just general business was made in Boston and in London and not in Rome. You know, it's what Philippe Lahm feared he would be if he took the sporting director's role at, at Bayern. Mm. So, really, it showed what foresight he's got, right? Yeah. Che sono giovani, abbiamo fatto una squadra. Diano una mano. Abbiano i coglioni di dare una mano alla squadra. Io sono là 24 ore al giorno. 24 ore al giorno sono là io. Tutti i giorni, cazzo. James, what about Inter? Talk to me about Inter. Big result for them on Monday night. Beat Lecce 4-0. A lot of headlines around them um, because of Romelu Lukaku and Alexis Sanchez and possibly Mario Cardi. Give us a kind of all-encompassing Inter update. I think I'd call it um, the Inter story 2019 tagline, the Conte effect. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the Conte effect was uh, in full effect on, on, on Monday night. Um, they um, blew Lecce away. Uh, Lecce, newly promoted side, have had back-to-back promotions. They and played it, quite open, didn't they? They did. I mean, they went for it and you know, they had some chances. I think nothing really clear-cut. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, they, they're firm in the belief that if they are going to stay up, they have to be on the front foot. A lot, of teams, to a lot of promoted teams into top flights are all over the place are doing this now. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, two goals the first half, two goals in the second half. Lukaku... Um, scored on his debut already signs of a good partnership between him and uh, Lautaro Martinez but I think the real kind of um, signs of the Conte effect as we saw with the Italian national team in particular how he manages to get a tune out of players Candreva Candreva for example who scores already a candidate for goal of the season yeah, that was someone who was heavily criticised last season uh, couldn't score a goal under uh, Luciano Spalletti and was always just um Seen as a kind of symbol of of the shortcomings of that interside in that just aimless crossing from wide areas to mm. no one in particular, and he came out after the game and he said, you know, it's a lot easier. And he said this when Conte was the national team manager and was a part of that setup. It's a lot easier for players to go go out on the pitch and perform when you know exactly what you have to do, exactly what the manager wants from you. Yeah, he gives me three solutions in this particular situation. Um, if I find myself in it. So, you know, it's almost like I can go on autopilot rather than have to improvise all the time. That's the level of detail Conte goes into. How much did we feel that with Lukaku? Because, you know, we can talk about not just what a player does in terms of his own performance, but in terms of his body language, the way he carries himself, the way he relates to his teammates, the way he celebrated his goal. As well, when he mm. when he when he piled over to the touchline, it feels as if Lukaku is very much at home in a way he certainly wasn't at the, certainly in the last six months at Manchester United. Well, he knew that Conte wanted him, a because Conte wanted him at Chelsea, and 
that Mourinho ended up signing him for Manchester United to stop him going to Chelsea. Um, and you can see that everything that Inter have done um, this summer has been well thought out. They know exactly what uh, they want, exactly what system they're recruiting for. Manager, chief executive on exactly the same page in contrast to our last conversation. Mm. Um, and Lukaku will be set up to succeed um, at Inter. And you can see right from the get-go that Inter are ready um, and that even players who come in at the last minute, Stefan de Vrij, for example, picked up an injury in the warm-up, they decided not to risk him and they played Andrea Ranocchia. Uh, Ranocchia, who's still at the club. And, you know, Ranno, which means frog in uh, in Italian, it's like... Um, Conte gives Ranocchio a kiss and he becomes a prince. <laughs> you know? It's nice. the Conte effect. Well, how much do you lay it? I mean, you talk about Lukaku and perhaps it's it's an, it's a nice and easy narrative to say that he's been freed from the miserable shackles of Old Trafford and, and, and we'll come on to Alexis Sanchez in a minute and see yep. if he can do the same. But what do you make of Lautaro Martinez's role in this? Because I saw something that you tweeted earlier this week saying that he's got a great knack of making other players around him look decent. Mm. Um, and he's he's exciting. He's only 22. I mean, he's, you know, he's his first club in Europe and all the rest of it came on, on board. I think he travelled all the way from Racing Club yep. on, on a hype train um, yes. <laughs> and stopped off at an interstation. Um, he's, he's played his part in that, surely, based on what I saw against Lecce on Monday night. Yeah, Lautaro for me is a super smart player um, mm. who with his movement, uh, runs he makes, uh, a lot of it that goes on scene because it's off the ball, just makes um, his strike partner or even you know the, the midfield player who he's kind of um, bouncing off look very good. Mm. I mean, I remember uh, second half of last season when uh, the, the Akadi fiasco uh, blew up. All of a sudden, Lautaro is thrust into the spotlight you know he has to, he has to take responsibility for um the team's you know sort of attacking production if you like and he did it i watched um the 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 derby second half of last season he was magnificent in that game um and i just think he's one of those players who uh deserves a chance now to show what he's got he's had a year to adjust um to italian football and uh he's now going to be playing in a system where there is a role for him, because last year it was either four-two-three-one or four-three-three. There was only one central attacking role, and that was Mario Icardi's. Until everything that happened to Icardi happened, and now there's two two positions up there, and I think he's a really good foil for a striker like uh, Lukaku. But is he gonna, is he going to drop to the bench with well, Sanchez coming in? Yeah. This is the interesting thing. Is obviously when you sign a, a player like Alexis Sanchez, and We'll get into the actual uh, detail of that deal in a minute because it's it's quite interesting. You'd expect if Sanchez recovers his best, um, he'll be playing, I imagine. Um, now, Inter will be going across three fronts. They need um, to have backups for those two positions. Um, I think Lukaku, Sanchez, Lautaro, Politano, who seems to be at this moment the other kind of player for that that central striking position uh, even though he's a winger uh, they will get lots of game time I think over the course of the season but the Sanchez one is fascinating because as with Lukaku they are gambling uh, on the fact that United has been a black hole for lots of players under the kind of Woodward Moyes Van Gaal Mourinho era um, in that the likes of 
you know, Radamel Falcao went there, seen as a massive flop, ridiculed in this country, turns up, goes back to Monaco, wins the league, reaches the Champions League semi-final, is a protagonist in that. Angel de Maria, again, someone who flopped there, has been pretty damn good for for, for oh. PSG, has shown that he's still the player he was at Real Madrid. Daley Blind, who did play regularly for United and was seen as a useful player for United, he leaves and what do we see? He's playing at centre-back for Ajax. Ajax win the league in the first time in a long time, reach Champions League semi-finals. I think there is a sense that United is the problem, not Lukaku, not Sanchez. Mm. And this is something that into a really kind of um, backing, believing and gambling on. Um, so it's, it's, it's fascinating also seeing that it's alone and nothing else. There is no option to buy. There is no compulsory purchase order at the end of this deal. So in some respects, you know, if things don't go well for Sanchez quickly, yeah, Inter are on the line for anything. They can return him to sender. They've yeah, got, they've got Lautaro. I think Man United's portion of his wages still makes him, I think, outside the top six in England, the highest paid player in so the So I'm Premier. led to believe that <laughs> Inter will pay five million of his wages. Right. Um, so you're absolutely right. United's still picking up. I think they're picking up 175,000 a week. I yeah. mean, this, really, this is for almost... not uh, to play for Man United. This is almost like a carbon copy almost of the nanny situation because you've got to reinflate the value of a player the market value of a player who doesn't have any at the moment yeah that's that's the problem Uh, talking of problems what do inter do if they can't get rid of icardi by monday (laughs) well this is this is a problem um because icardi has spent the entire summer believing that he can change antonio conte's mind and the likes of Rajana Ingelan, or particularly Rajana Ingelan, who's moved on loan to Cagliari, said, good luck, mate. You're mm. not going to be able to do that. Well, you know? Conte talked about Icardi as an ex-player after the Lecce yeah, game, Yeah, he was like, he? we've moved on three of our key players from last year, Ingelan, Perisic and Icardi. Doesn't look good for that. For well, him, the, the, what I find really funny about um, uh, what is, you know, quite a desperate situation uh, for Icardi is that um, they've signed Lukaku, and they've given him Icardi's number nine shirt. Right. So it's like, okay, they've signed a player who plays in my position for a club record fee. They've given him my number. Locker, yeah. company car. Ultimately, my yeah. days are numbered. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to take the number seven shirt. What number does Alex, Alexis Sanchez play with? Seven, yeah. <laughs> seven. <laughs> you, can imagine, you can imagine that'll be, that'll be taken off yeah. and given to Sanchez. But, you know, I think, unfortunately, Icardi has not learned his lesson in that, um, yeah, last Sunday, first weekend of the season, his wife, his agent, is back on TV. She's back on the sofa, and she's asked about Icardi, and and she says that um, the people that matter at the club, the person that matters at the club, wants Icardi to stay, and that was taken to me. And she was alluding to Steven Zhang, the twenty-eight-year-old president of the club. So not Conte, not Marotta, the chief executive on the football side, but the present is the one that matters and he wants Icardi to stay. And the next day, Zhang and Marotta went to the training ground, sat down with Icardi and said, no, that's not the case. So We're what- all on the same page here. We want, you're out of our project and if we can, we'd like to sell you between now and the end of the transfer window. So what are the, who are the candidate clubs realistically for him? Well, Napoli are the ones that have shown the firmest interest in him. Um, are willing well, to put just money on the table. Though. Yeah, but he's not a centre forward. Well, they've signed an attacking player yeah. for that club record fee. Yeah, 
But in I this mean, window. they're still very much want to make a statement in the transfer window. I was window. kind of approaching I it from the transfer, from the, from the funds kind of point of view and the wages and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's much more likely they'll take Llorente on a free uh, by the end of this week. Um, you know, I think that's one thing that they can be pretty confident about. But um, at the moment, um, yeah, they recognise that Icardi is one of the best finishes in the game and if there's an opportunity to take him, they'll they'll take him. The, the problem is, is that he has had it in his head all summer that he wants to stay into. And I think this goes back to all those other years we've been doing the OTC and people have said, why you know, why doesn't Icardi go? Why doesn't he leave? Because he loves Inter. And I think this, again, shows it. Unfortunately, the advice he gets has been really, really poor. And I'm, I'm really surprised that, again, after a summer to reflect on all of this, his agent is going on TV again and essentially making his chances of staying at Inter all the more difficult. I mean, they were impossible anyway, but all mm. the more difficult. And yeah, he now, um, if yeah, reports in the Italian papers, it looks like rather than actually leave the club, is considering legal action and going to war <laughs> with the club. Well, it's not going to get him in the team, is it? Well, it's not going to get him into the team, yeah. but it might, for example, get him to be released from his contract and um, and then be able to find a different situation uh, from there, but the problem is, it's like you can leave if you want. Inter <laughs> want to sell you, yes. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, they've made their home there, they've made their family there. So there's no uh, chance he'll leave Italy then. Doesn't look like it. Monaco, for example, have been interested in taking him, um, and he's not interested in that. I think the only club he would leave for is 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 the best club in Italy, which is is Juventus. And Juventus can't shift the players. They've already got. Yeah. They, they can't. They've tried to sell Mario Mandzukic this week. Have been unsuccessful. They've tried to sign, sell Paolo Dybala, and not once but twice. Mm. They've tried to sell Higuain. They haven't been able to move the play, players to kind of ease the burden on the on the wage bill and bring in money that they could sign an Icardi with. But of course, the president of Inter said we will never sell Icardi to Juventus. They're our main rival. They're the, the team that we want to overtake. Why would we, why would we do that? So again, yeah, it's a it's an incredible situation. Sometimes winner, sometimes loss. I have many difficulties. Many. Mami work 12, 12 hours, 15 hours a day in the back. My job and my players is not touch. Andy, what um, what do you make of this out uh, the, the fallout of this Porto um, Benfica result? Well, it's something that there's going to be fallout from for a little while, I think, because it's so incredibly unexpected. I mean, if I were a betting gentleman, which I'm not especially. Um, I would have uh, staked whatever I had last weekend on Benfica to beat Porto and with, with some comfort, especially with it being at the Stadio de Luz, especially bearing in mind that since Bruno Lage became uh, the head coach of Benfica initially on a temporary basis back in January, they dropped two points in the league. Yeah. Two points. They hadn't conceded a goal so far this season. But this was the ultimate expression of Sergio Concesao's Porto and Sergio Concesao's personality going back from when he was a player to, to now him as a coach that he does have this not just a, an attacking mentality a, an aggressive mentality I mean James and I have, 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 have talked before about 
And, you know, when you've seen Porto in a Champions League context about how physical mm. Porto are for a, a Portuguese side. And sometimes fans of Porto have been quite unhappy that he's seemingly uh, prioritised um, physically strong players as opposed to technically strong players the, 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 or the technically strongest mm. players of, of available to to them. And um, this was like the, the ultimate manifestation of, of, of this, really. Benfica play much more pretty football. We can't get away from that. They weren't able to. Did they get bullied out of it in this game? Yeah, they did. I mean, they were quite flat as well. Um, And, you know, we're used to a situation where Benfica play exhilarating football and win at home. But they never even came close to scoring. Now, um, um, Machesin, who's been a brilliant signing already for for Porto in goal, not quite enough to to keep them from falling out of the Champions League, which is still something that they're they're really smarting over. It's a big blow, that, isn't it? Of course, it's a huge blow. And financially, it has really profound effects for for, for them. I don't know who's going to be in in that easy group that Porto always (laughs) always draw in the Champions League. And there's no Man United either. (laughs) They always get an easy group as well. Portuguese Manchester United. That's that's, that's what they are. But Machesin brilliant as he's he's been he didn't have anything to do hmm. and what are the chances of him going to the Estadio de Luz and basically being a, a spectator for for most of the game um, Porto won 2-0 they could have won uh, by more um, Zé Luis was was brilliant leading the line for them um, Musa Marega as is his won't was a little more hit and miss he missed one like glaring opportunity on, on the counter attack before scoring quite a difficult one to to seal it. And everything flowed perfectly for Porto. And now, now we said, like before the game, well, I said before the game, that, you know, you know exactly who Benfica are going to pick. The the 11 is obvious. It's maybe not quite the same with Porto. You know, they lost players, again, underlining how Benfica have overtaken them in the transfer market for free this summer. They, they lost, you know, players of the quality of uh, Brahimi, and uh, Hector Herrera, the captain, for for free, and you know that is such a blow, for, especially when mm. you think of the financial model which Porto work on. And obviously, they're they're coming out of a a world of shit in an FFP sort mm. of um, perspective, but um, a world of shit. What's that in Portuguese? O mundo, o mundo de merda, and um, yeah. Uh, they they look surprisingly together. Um, you know, there, there are young players who are coming in and making a, a difference, like uh, uh, Romario Barro, who a lot of Italian clubs are looking at already and, uh, and looks a, a, a player. But all of a sudden, Porto have a personality again, and it's Sergio Conceição's personality. Well, they travelled with their own particular coffee machine, the Portuguese national team. Well, yeah, I don't think they bought it locally. I right. think it was like brought as so they could get the, the coffee just how they liked. Yeah, it. media facility. Yeah, and it was yeah pretty thick and viscous. This was a Stakhanov production.